the book of Ezra. It's about a third of the way through your Bibles. If you've gone to the Psalms, you've gone too far. It's right after Second Chronicles. And we come to our conclusion in the book of Ezra. I, I was putting some books back, and I was kind of getting sad. I, I, I pray that it has been a, as good for your souls as it's been for mine. We're going to be looking at chapter 9 and chapter 10. Now, in, in my family growing up, this won't surprise or shock any of you, but, but uh, I, I just, we loved words. I loved words. But words were in various categories, right? So, so, so you had bad words that you weren't allowed to say. My, my twin brother and I got around this. We would invent words. We had good words. We had bathroom words. We had grammatically incorrect words. And today, I, I want to ask a sort of rhetorical question, which is simply this. What about sad words? If, if I were to ask you which word in the English language is the saddest word, what sort of word would you think of? Uh, William Faulkner, in his book, The Sound and the Fury, he, he answers it from his perspective. He gives us what he thinks is the saddest word in English. And in the book, there's two characters. There's an older man and a younger man, and they're having a conversation. They're debating what's the saddest word. And the old man says, the saddest word is the word was. And the reason is because when something turns into was, it means that it's in the past and you can't do anything about it. It's, you're stuck. Well, the young man responds, yes, was is a very sad word. But really, the saddest word is the word again. Because it means that something has recycled. Something is repeating again and again. Well, this morning we're going to continue and finish our study in the book of Ezra. And we're going to look at the last two chapters. They're long. There's a lot of names that I don't want to pronounce again. But we're going to, by, by the end of the morning, we'll look at most of it. Now, if you remember Ezra in chapter 8, he, he took a bunch of returning exiles. They, they were caravanning from Babylon to Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem, and at the end of chapter 8, they, 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 they go to the temple, they go to the altar, they make sacrifices, they worship, they praise God, and you might be thinking, Here, here's the crescendo, the exiles are back, all is well. Well, that's chapter 8, and we still have chapter 9 and chapter 10. Chapter 9 and chapter 10 can be easily broken up in this way, kind of narratively, as a sort of cohesive plot. You have a problem, you have a prayer, you have a proposal, and then you have a separation. I couldn't think of another P. So, um, so, so you, have a, you have a problem, you have a prayer, you have a proposal that's given, and then you have a peeling away. Eh, that doesn't really work, but right? you have a solution, a sort of conclusion, which has to do with a separation, and in the midst of this, kind of the, the climax of this narrative is Ezra's prayer that we see at the end of chapter 9. 
And in fact, when you look at that prayer, you find the saddest word. Let me read it. Chapter 9, verse 13. See if you can spot the saddest word. We'll start in 13. It's actually in verse 14. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations. Again. It happened again. The sins of God's people came knocking again, came passed through the generations. It had happened again. Now, in the context of this really sad word comes a sort of rhetorical question that Ezra gives in his prayer. It is that which frames this entire section. It's a question that all of us need to answer. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, if you don't know what you are, this is the question that Ezra asks that all of us must answer. And it's the, the end of verse 14. Would you not be angry with us until you consume us so that there should be no remnant nor any escape? That's the question that Ezra asks God that then comes to us, which is basically when our sin happens again and again and again, will God consume us because of that sin? If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, I wonder how you answer that question. If, if you're not a Christian, I, I, I assume you have some a uh, concept that this world is not right. And the question is, in light of that, how do you think God's going to respond? And for the Christian, you, you might know the answer to this, the Sunday school answer, the this sort of intuitive answer to that question. But Ezra actually answers it in a really interesting way. Because as bleak as that question is, there is hope in chapters 9 and chapters 10 of the book of Ezra. And hope comes by way of this this sort of big idea that I'm going to set before you. That hope comes to the remnant, which is just another word for the faithful community, the true followers of God. Hope comes to the remnant through a sympathetic high priest. Hope comes through a remnant. Hope comes to the remnant through a sympathetic priest. Now go, go to verse 1. Verse 1, we, we have our problem set forth to us. These officials come to Ezra and they say, we've got a problem. We've got a big problem. Let me read verses 1 and 2. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptianites, the Egyptians. 
and the Amorites. Pretty much all the ites, right? For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. That's the problem. Now, let me just set us all at ease. This is not saying maybe what you think it's saying. This is not saying that interracial marriage is wrong. That's not what is talking about. Historically speaking, some Christians have said and used this text to that end and, and basically shame on them. That, that is in no way what is going on in this text. This has nothing to do with cultures, per se, being married. This has everything to do with religion and religious affections. This hasn't to do with one kind of culture marrying another culture, one ethnicity marrying another ethnicity. Really, and you can think of it this way, an appalling term, this has to do with being unequally yoked, marrying someone of another religion. That's what's going on here. And I'm just going to put it in context, biblical context, and just point it out to you that this has always sort of been the concern in the Bible. If you go to Exodus chapter 34, verse 10, God's people, they flee Egypt, that they assemble, God speaks to them through Moses, and then notice, notice what God says. See the similarities uh, with verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9 of the book of Ezra. God speaks these words to Moses. Then the Lord said, obey what I have commanded you today. I will drive out to you, I will drive out before you. The Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Verse 16, here's the command. And you will choose, and when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Basically, don't do it. If you flip over, to, uh, two books over to the book of Deuteronomy, verses seven or chapter seven, verses one and four. Same thing. Same thing. And then, if you go to Judges chapter three, if you remember when we went through it uh, about a year ago, you know Joshua finally leads God's people to the promised land, and he says, well, "When you do, kick out all the other nations." Because those nations were going to lead them astray. You get to chapter 3, verse 5, and we read of this. This sad reality. The, the Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. You see, it's not just that they took foreign wives. It's that they took foreign gods. And you see this most crystal clear in the greatest king that's ever lived in Israel, King Solomon. King Solomon, who himself was the wisest king. He, he asked for wisdom, and God lavished wisdom on him. And the pinnacle of Israel's history is under his reign. But he falls in chapter 11. Now, how does he fall? Not exactly through money. Not, not exactly through power or pride or 
was wives. Wives. Chapter 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughters. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, Sidonianites, Hittites. They were from nations that which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely, here's the kicker, they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Just keep reading. Solomon held fast to not God's love, but to the love of these other women, a thousand of them. Personally, I think one is enough. And then it says in verse 5, he followed Asherath, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. You guys, this is the historic problem for God's people. It was not in Ezra's time about, you know, you know, just marriage per se. It was about what that marriage to another nation and another culture would mean. It would mean slowly but inevitably their hearts and souls and minds and affections would be drawn towards other gods. And that was Ezra's concern. That was his fear. He knew God's word. We remember that? He, he was a man of God's word. He, he, he taught God's word. He knew God's word. He obeyed God's word. That was Ezra. And when he hears this, he's like, oh, no, not again. And so he weeps. We see that in verses 4 and 5. He, he, he weeps. He laments. He pulls out his beard. It's interesting, I don't even know what to do with this, but in the book of uh, Nehemiah, which it really is kind of one book, I'll I'll preach it within the year, I think. Um, In in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah laments a situation and he grabs someone else's beard and pulls it out. Ezra pulls out his own beard. I like Nehemiah's better. But Ezra, he he, he laments, He, he cries. He knows the seriousness of the situation. And if you don't realize how serious this is, just look at Ezra's choice of words. Let me just list them. He calls what's going on in Israel an abomination. It's faithlessness. It's appalling, shameful, blush-worthy. He calls it iniquities, guilt, forsaking the commandments, evil, uncleanliness. I mean, you remember uh, David Letterman's his top 10 list, right? This, this is like a, a top 10 list of Hebrew words and phrases to describe their sins. This is serious. And then if you flip over to chapter 10, at the very end of the book, the book ends with a list of all those families who intermarried. There's about 110 of them. And you'll notice a couple things. Levites, priests, the, the spiritual leaders, they were doing this. And then if you also kind of look at the specific names, and then you go back to chapter 8 and look at the, uh, the, the, the names of those who came back with Ezra. And if you go back to chapter 2, the ones that came back originally with uh, Zerubbabel, you realize that same names are listed, many of the same names. The, the, the leaders, spiritual, the prominent leaders, all were doing this. This was serious. 
Now, how did this happen? You ever wonder that? That, that? That's what I was wondering this week. How, how does this happen again? Well, this is what sin does. This is how sin works. It's interesting that in uh, verse 1 and 2, it's not Ezra who exposes this. Do you notice it? Ezra's not the one who says, hey, this is going on. It's some officials, some other leaders who come to Ezra and say, this is going on. So they knew. God's people knew that this was wrong, and yet they still did it. They probably were thinking something like, well, yes, we know that it's wrong, but, but I'm the exception to the rule. I, I think often it's not inerrancy that's being attacked, it's relevancy that is being attacked. Oh, yes, God's word says that, but that's, that's, that's an old saying. That, that, that's no longer relevant to my life. And so, inevitably, they started taking foreign wives. This is how sin works. Sin, it's all about subtle, small compromises. I mean, Solomon, just as an example, didn't wake up one day and say, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I've been worshiping God my whole life. I'm going to go up to a high place and sacrifice children to the god Moloch. No, it happened with small compromise. It happened with marrying a foreign wife. And then she asked, hey, just by, uh, I know you're not into this, but can you just build me a little altar to Moloch? And he just got tired of the nagging and said, whatever. That's your thing, but this will be my thing. And eventually their thing became Solomon's thing. Small compromises over time. And eventually... Solomon flat out became worshiper of other gods. That's how sin works. It's how sin worked in Solomon's day, in Ezra's day, in our day. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book Screwtape Letters, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turning, without millstones, without signposts. In many ways, this is a call to be very, very careful with God's word and with our sin. You know those times in which you're reading God's word or you're convicted by sin and you just instantly think, I'll do that later. Ah, That's not for me. Oh, I really don't want to call that person in and apologize. Starts with small compromises. And then over time, you wake up one day and realize you haven't heard God's voice in a long, long time. And that was why Ezra is devastated, why he cries, why he laments, why he is so worried, why in his prayer he asks, God, are you going to consume us? The very sin that had gotten them into the exile, they were now living it out all over again. And he thought... God, you're just going to be tired of this. We are a broken record as God's people. Are you going to consume us now? You can feel the tension, the worry, the anxiety because of 
their sins. And so Ezra does this amazing thing, this model of a thing. He prays. Verse 6. He prays. It's a prayer of confession. And, and I really do think, and, and this week, uh, it starts in verse 6. It goes all the way to the end of the chapter 9. Read it this week in total. This is a wonderful model prayer as it relates to confession. This is just wonderful. I, I wish we could just dissect every phrase of it. it it's just gold. So, so read it this week. Study it this week. Well, starting in, in verse 6, he, he, he confesses. And, and notice that he never says, but. Right? He never said, we did this, but uh, we, were, we were having a hard day or a hard week. He, he never excuses everything. He never defends anything. He just lays it all out there. Look, look at verse 6. Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to life uh, in front of you. For our iniquities have risen higher than our hearts and our guilt has mounted up into the heavens, right? It's interesting that, that it's not just like, oh, we got caught and, and we're embarrassed and our sin is against like other people. He connects us to God. It's not just that they're, that they're sorry for the consequences of this sin. No, no, no. They're sorry because this is an attack of God. This is an act of treason to God. Ezra's embarrassment, his shame, it's connected to God himself. And so in verses 6 through 15, we have this model of confession, this, this, this prayer, this acknowledgement of sin, this, this plea for forgiveness. But there's one more thing that I want to point out in this prayer. That if you read it, I, I, I bet you would notice it. We live in an I, me, mine culture, don't we? That's the world we live in. It's interesting, the pronoun choice of this prayer. In verse 6, he starts with I, but then he abandons that, and we have we and our. Which is very, very interesting. Ezra did not intermarry. Ezra is blameless on this account. He did not sin. He didn't even encourage other people to sin. And yet he says, our sin, our iniquity has risen to God. Why would he do that? Why would he take on corporately their sin when he individually had not sinned? Well, it's because Ezra comes in a long line of sympathetic priests, sympathetic leaders. You remember Ezra, remember uh, Moses on the mountain? Very similar. There's, there's allusions and echoes to this all over this chapter. Moses is up on the mountain, just, just a few days, talking with God. And then down there, what, what are the people doing? They're like, well, we're, where's Moses is taking too long. What, let's, let's fashion a, a bull. Let's have an idol and let's have a party and worship this idol. And God, you know, is talking to Moses and says, look what your people are doing. That's it. I'm wiping them out. I'm done with them. We'll, we'll, we'll rebuild this whole thing with you, Moses. I'm done. I'm taking them out. Look at their faithlessness. Look at this evil. And what does Moses do? He becomes a mediator. He stands before God and the people, and he mediates and he prays and says, God, 
Don't do it. For the sake of your name, don't wipe them out. And God does that. God, God, God relents from that. And so now we have almost the exact same situation. Here Ezra is recast as Moses, standing in the gap between God and the people, saying, for the sake of your name, don't wipe us out. Ezra is a a priest, and he's mediating between God's people and God himself. That is what a priest does. But Ezra wasn't a perfect priest. He wasn't a sinless priest. He himself would need to make sacrifices to atone for his own sins. His prayer is a model for us. It's a wonderful model for us. But it's not the ultimate model. If you go to the book of Hebrews, the author writes this about Jesus Christ. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Ezra was just pointing to the ultimate priest who would stand in the gap between God and man. God in his holiness and humanity in their sinfulness and mediate so that God and man could be at peace and be at rest. But notice in Hebrews something is pointed out and that is that Jesus himself sympathizes with us. I I think often we think that Jesus sympathizes with us when all things are going well. That's not the text. That's not what the text says in Hebrews chapter 4. It says that Jesus sympathizes with us in our weakness, in our sin, when things are not going well, when life has gone off the rails. What the text is getting at is that Jesus, as our priest, is not far off. As we suffer, Jesus suffers. As we experience trials and weakness, Jesus experiences trials and weakness. As we sin, well, Jesus doesn't sin, but Jesus does carry the burden of our sin. So even in our sin, Jesus sympathizes with us to such an extent that he himself would die for that sin. Jesus is the ultimate priest that sympathizes with us. He knows our loneliness. He knows our rejection. He knows our betrayal. He knows our bad days from our good days. He knows our weaknesses. He will not leave us alone. And God will listen to him. He is that high priest like Moses and Ezra. He is that high priest who God will listen to. Because he lived perfectly, he died willingly, and he rose triumphantly. If you just think about it, the gospel is the story of the exodus. Or sorry, the the story of the exile. Jesus dies, and for three days, he's exiled from God himself. Then he rose and is restored like God's people to newness of life, 
And the reason is because this remnant we see here, God's people, Israel, Jesus is the ultimate remnant. He is the ultimate faithful one. He is the ultimate Israel. He is the true, the better Israel because he never used the word again. If you're not a Christian, I I wonder, do you know this? That, That Jesus is sympathetic towards you. He is the ultimate sympathetic priest. A priest that can meet you in your sin and in your sorrow. He will never leave you alone. And for us, just a reminder that when a was becomes again, when we again sin, Jesus is still with you. Jesus has bound himself up to you. Here we have this wonderful, priestly, sympathetic prayer. But ultimately, it points to Jesus Christ. Now, we're not done. That's just sort of half of it. But, but really, the, the rest of, the, of chapter 10, it, it's just sort of the, 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 the resolution. So let me just point out a few things. In verse 1 through 5, we have a man named Shechaniah, and he, he, he comes to Ezra with an idea, a proposal. He said, Let, let's make a covenant with God to separate. All those, you know, about 110 marriages, we're going to separate them. We're going we're gonna, to, they're going to divorce. Now, it's interesting that Ezra doesn't come up with this. This man named Shechaniah does. Well, Ezra prays. He, he gets away. He, he wants to take some time to, to think and process. And then Ezra says, yeah, that's, that's a good plan. And so he leads God's people towards this massive divorce. R- really, this, this is, in many parts, a sign of, Repentance on God's people. I don't know if you noticed it when Phil was reading it, but, but you know, multiple times the, the people say, we will do this. We will do all that is required of us. We have sinned. We have broken the law. We will do as you seem fit. This is repentance. They are corporately repenting, which repentance isn't just a, a sort of change of behavior. It's a, a change of mind followed by a change of behavior. And we see that repentance all the way through chapter 10. So Ezra accepts the plan. We go down to verse 9. and God's people, uh, you know, the true remnants say, they they announce, yes, we're going to do this. Verse 12 says that all the assembly answered with a loud voice, it is so we must do as you have said. Then the leaders appoint, right? This is like the rainy season. Don't you just love the Bible? Uh, you know, it says, like, this is the rainy season, so they didn't have enough time. Don't, don't you just love the, the particularities of the Bible? Like, like, no fake book would just randomly be like, well, this is the rainy season, so, it, you know, we, we couldn't do it in one night, so it took about three months to, to accomplish this. So, so they appoint leaders. It takes about three months, and they look at family after family and make these judgments on people and various families. After these three months, these families are 
These marriages are absolved. Mass divorce. Now, this is uncomfortable. And I don't know what you're thinking about here, but as you read this, you go, what is going on here? Now, we know from other places that divorce is not a good thing. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16 says that divorce is hatred towards God. Mark chapter 10 says divorce is a, a witness to human hardness of heart. So divorce is never a good thing. There are legitimate reasons to be divorced, but, but divorce is always a product of some sort of sin. It's a mournful reality. And yet this situation in Ezra chapter 9 and chapter 10, I think is a classic example of choosing one evil, sort of the lesser of two evils. I mean, Paul himself would, would address a similar situation if, you, if you're wondering, oh, well, oh, you know, in this situation, the worry, the concern was that, you know, marrying and someone who worshiped another God would draw God's people away. Well, it, does that mean that this is just, uh, you know, a proof text for if I'm married to a, uh, an unbeliever, I can divorce them? I don't think that's what's going on here. Paul himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 13, says that if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he is chosen to, and consented to live with her, she should not divorce him. So I don't think that's the application here. But I do think there's a really clear application here. And the application, I think, is, is the Sermon on the Mount. I think the clearest application here is Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus addresses sin and what God's people are to do in light of their sin. This is what Jesus says. The, the, the sort of frame it has to do with lust, but, but it's applicable to all sin. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. For it is better than you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. Now, what, what Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount is that sin is serious and that people should take radical steps when they sin. That, that, that repentance by nature is radical. And I think that's what we see in this story. We see a radical step towards communal repentance. It was a radical step. It's an uncomfortable step. It's meant to shock us and meant to sort of kind of descriptively, narratively point out the seriousness of the situation and the radical steps they took towards becoming a pure and holy people. But not everyone repented. Did you notice the last verse Phil read, verse 15? Jonathan, the son of someone, opposed this. As it relates to repentance, that everyone always does. And everyone turns to God, turns away from other gods, and turns to God. Not everyone repents. Christians and non-Christians. And so what I really think as, uh, by way of application, the the sort of low-hanging fruit of this text is simply this. Give no quarter to your sin. 
Don't play with it. Not even in your mind. Take radical steps towards repentance like we see in this text. Now, now illustrations of this are, are easy for many things, right? You know, you know, if, if, you know, if it's lust, don't watch these sort of things. Those are the easy ones. But what do you do with worry? A sinful type of worry or anxiousness. Well, I think radically it means don't, don't play around with that worry in your mind. But constantly meditate on Jesus Christ. Constantly say no to that. I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to worry about that. God is in control. He is good. And I'm going to submit God, this thing to God. It means not playing with that. Or, or, or as it relates to maybe unforgiveness. What does radical repentance look like for that? It, it, it means not dwelling on it. Stewing in it. Not bringing it up. But in the present, actively forgiving the other person. This is a call to repentance. And there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of hope. I I said that there is a sad word. There's lots of sad words. The sad word maybe in this is again. But there's a really hopeful word. There's a really beautiful word, glorious word, happy, joyful, rejoicing word. And we see it actually coming from Shechaniah, verse 2 of chapter 10. Shechaniah says, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women for the people, uh, from the peoples of the land. But even, and this is the word I think is such a wonderful word, now. But even now, there is hope. There is hope for Israel in spite of this. What is the hope in spite of this? The hope comes by way of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that when you repent, that when you turn to God, you're not seeing an angry God, a wrathful God, vindictive God. You're seeing a God who loves you enough to have died for you and that will take your repentance and not throw it back in your face, but will embrace you as a child of God. The book of Ezra is all about renewal. That was the title of this sermon series. God's people being renewed. There's almost an irony in this. I don't know what's happening right now. I'll find out probably in a few minutes as it relates to the governor's new directives. But, But one of the reasons why I wanted to preach this is that I felt like we were on a, we were virtually exiled. And we were slowly coming back to the building. You you get the sort of analogies, right? I don't know what the future holds. But I do know this, that if Ezra would teach us anything, it's that God's hand is upon us to do us good, to renew us, and to remind us time and time again that as we turn to God, we'll see his smiling face and we'll see that God only speaks good words back to us. Let's pray.
God, we, we are grateful. We, we are grateful for your word, that, that your word is active. It, it, it comes to us through, through your inscripturated word, and you speak to us. Lord, I just pray that for everyone here, I pray that you would speak to them, that, 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 that the words of your word would reverberate in their hearts in an intimate and a personal way. Lord, grow us as a, a community that is, that is actively taking steps at trusting in you regardless of the future. Lord, Ezra and company, they, they marched to Jerusalem, but we know that we are marching to New Jerusalem, and your hand is on us as we do so. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray all of these. Amen.